are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. This is David Guzik. Sorry for this very awkward beginning. I've had an error here, and for some reason, it looks like I'm only going to be able to do this on this particular orientation. So greetings to everybody. Um, I take it that I'm on, and I just want to say hello. Give me a minute here to adjust my camera and my lighting and such. I had this all figured out, but then something strange happened, and here we are. My name is David Guzik, and I'm coming to you live from a city called Siegen, Germany. And here, as I just adjust the level of this just about, here in, in Siegen, here in Siegen, Germany, we are at a conference, a Calvary Chapel conference of um, associated churches. People have known each other for a long time. This is probably the 12th or 13th year that we've had this conference together, and we look forward to it every time. So I'm very pleased that I'm able to be here with you, even though I'm not in my home in the west coast of the United States. Uh, I am here with you now and uh, be able to answer your questions. I do appreciate your prayers. Uh, My wife and I have been in the middle of a very busy travel season. Just a couple weeks ago, we were in Africa. We did one of our Q&As from Kenya, another one from Uganda. Last week, I was in California. This week, I'm in Germany. God willing, in the next couple weeks, we're going to be in uh, California again, and then uh, back in Brazil later on in June. So, midst of a busy travel schedule, we certainly thank you for your prayers. So, let me just get a little bit adjusted. For some reason, I couldn't get things going, working with the... uh, side box, the rectangular orientation. So we're going to go with this orientation and go ahead and do it here. So um, let me go to whatever live questions we're going to come up with here. Uh, Here's the first question. Um, In Acts chapter 16, verses 32 through 30, uh, Paul and Silas told the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. I understand the jailer being saved, but it says the whole family. Uh, Was it a prophetic thing, a word of knowledge, or something else? Salvation is an individual decision, so was this predicted or prophesied? Well, again, I I think you've got it here. I think there's a few things going on. Uh, First of all, we do understand the dynamic when it comes to salvation, that salvation is really something that happens individually, Uh, that there's no such thing as... um, uh, people being saved on behalf of other people. Now, again, there's some question with this when it comes to the children of believing parents. Uh, That's something that raised by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. But leaving that aside, what we have here is an issue of each individual soul is responsible before God. And that's how it works in the kingdom of God. So your question here is very logical. How could Paul say to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your family will be saved. Well, I think it's a couple reasons. One thing is there very could have well been a supernatural knowledge that just God gave Paul the ability to believe in that moment that saving faith would be evident within his family. And that's something that very well could happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's also something else at work. Paul's saying to the Philippian jailer, who, by the way, was in a state of brokenness and repentance over his sin. Um, And while in that state of brokenness and repentance over his sin, that's when the Apostle Paul spoke to him in this way. And he said, look, you just need to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. In other words, that same promise of faith, if you have the repentant attitude that the Philippian jailer had, And if you as well have the belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Philippian jailer was exhorted to have, then you will be saved. And that promise was good for his household, not only for the Philippian jailer himself. 
And so we find this at work. So I, I think you're spot on in that particular question. Just how you say, uh, was it a prophetic thing, a word of knowledge? Very well could have been. But what the Apostle Paul was doing was holding out the promise of salvation to all those who repent and believe. And that promise wasn't just for the Philippian jailer himself, but it was for his entire family. Again, they would have to repent and believe themselves, uh, but that promise of salvation in Christ was open to them as they did. Thank you for that question, Spirit Warrior. Let me go on to the next question here from Barry, who asks, Paul tells the Corinthian believers that they are being carnal in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If a believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, how can they be carnal? Well, um, Barry, let me just sort of get at the question this way. To explain for our viewers what carnal means, it's a word in Christian vocabulary that for some reason seems to have been more prominent uh, when I was a younger believer, uh, when I was a young man, rather than I don't hear people using that terminology. I don't hear preachers using that terminology very often today. But I do hear that terminology at work among um, those who, uh, uh, you know, older preachers. And and what the word carnal simply means is fleshly. Uh, You know, uh, in the Latin language, carne uh, has to do with meat or flesh. So it just has to do with being fleshly. And I think, very simply, it's possible for a believer, it's possible for someone who's born again by the Spirit of God, to allow their fleshly nature to have too much strength, too much presence, too much domination, so to speak, in their life. And I think that was simply the problem in the Corinthian church. Uh, We understand that a person can be worldly. In other words, the influence of the world is all around them. And if a Christian is worldly, they're allowing too much of the world influence to influence how they think and how they act. We would probably rightly call that person a worldly Christian. Well, that's what a fleshly Christian is. Uh, We understand that a Christian can have a negative or harmful influence from the world around them. That, That is the culture that's in opposition to God. But there's also something within us, our weak human flesh, and that can also be a negative influence on us. Uh, fleshly desires, um, the lusts of the flesh, our bodily appetites, uh, our strivings after prestige, after fame, after whatever it would be. These things can be fleshly influences. And when a believer allows them to have too much prominence in their life, I think it can rightly be said that they are a fleshly believer. So that's simply the way that I would state it. That's what it means for a believer to live or to act according to the flesh. So when Paul says, brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as babes in Christ, he's talking about Christians who simply, uh, in their walk with God, are allowing too much strength, too much domination, too much influence from their fleshly nature to dominate their life. Hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Barry. I'm going to another question here from Spirit Warrior who asks, are the gifts talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 valid for today or are they considered sign gifts that are no longer there? Could this be a case of repurposing from sign gifts to edification gifts to help others in the body? I know I have experienced such things as a word of knowledge and prayed over others and saw healing which seemed to be those gifts. Well, Spirit Warrior, uh, I want to begin an answer like this by just acknowledging that there are different opinions regarding this in God's family. So you'll find some Christians who will have a different take on this than the answer I'm going to give you, and that's fine. But obviously, I believe my take is correct, (laughs) otherwise I wouldn't be presenting it to you. So let me just say very simply that I definitely believe that the gifts of the Spirit that are described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are for believers today as given and distributed as the Holy Spirit wills. That's what Paul talks about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and later on in chapter 14. He talks about how these gifts are distributed as the Spirit wills. So in other words, an individual is not in charge of whether or not they have a gift. Uh, That's something given to them by the Holy Spirit. And so 
Uh, we, we rest in that knowledge. And I, I know you mentioned the idea here or phenomena of what, what they call a sign gift. That's a very common explanation that um, many gifts of the Spirit are sign gifts. I, I want you to understand here something, Spirit Warrior, that the Bible itself never makes that designation. Now, it does say that some miraculous things are for signs. It definitely says that. But the Bible never specifies that certain gifts of the Spirit are for signs and certain gifts of the Spirit are not for signs. There's not like a a menu designation in the Scriptures where Paul says, okay, these four spiritual gifts are for signs, these four spiritual gifts are not. That is an imposed category upon those gifts. It's not one that's actually found within the text. So certainly, while certain miracles or miraculous gifts can function as signs, the Bible itself never categorizes them that way uh, and gives them as an excuse to say, well, those are no longer in operation because those signs are not given. Remember, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, his emphasis is that they are given not fundamentally as signs. Now, I'm not denying that that can be a purpose for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14 in speaking about the gifts of the Spirit, his emphasis there is that those gifts of the Spirit are given for the edification of the body. And while somebody may make an argument that the signs are not needed today because we have the completed canon, the completed collection of the scriptures, and I understand that argument, but edification of God's family is still needed today. And that's the reason why God gives those gifts. That's the stated reason in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So while I would recognize that miraculous works or gifts of the Spirit can function as signs, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the fundamental reason they're given is for the edification of God's people. Okay, hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Let me go on to the next question here from Regina, who asks, is there such a thing as people casting out demons and prophesying as the apostles say today? Well, yes, I believe that demon possession is a real thing today. And I also believe that um, demons can be cast out by the power of God working through his servants. Uh, I I believe that there are people today who have cast out demons in Jesus' name, as the Bible says. Now, I do agree with the idea that in the modern Western world, we see much less demon possession, at least in a classic sense, than is seen in other parts of the world. And and I think that this is attributable to two main reasons. It isn't because Satan no longer is active. It isn't because Satan is no longer interested in doing such things. Not at all. But I believe that there's less evident demon possession in the Western world for two reasons. First of all, you have the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian influence. Now, even though that Christian influence is fading in Europe, where I am right now, even though it's fading in America, where I'm from, you could say that that Christian influence is fading, but it's still present. And there is still a legacy of 2,000 years of Christian influence that I believe has greatly restricted not eliminated by any means, but the evident ways of Satan's work among people. And I say evident because Satan is working in non-evident ways all the time. So that's one aspect, but here's another aspect that probably carries even more weight. Not only is there the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian influence and culture, but there's another important factor. And that is, I believe that in the Western world, predominantly... Satan perceives his strategy, his purpose is better served by remaining behind the scenes. And so he keeps, as much as he can, somewhat of a low profile. Uh, Now, again, we we see, you know, examples of Satan and demonic activity in the Western world. 
But, but in some sense, that's nothing compared to evidence and evident demonic activity in places where the gospel's never reached, in places where people are given over to idolatry and animism and other such things. And so I believe that there are places in the world, and the Western world is kind of part of this, where it's in Satan's interest to keep a low profile, and therefore he does. So Satan is definitely at work. (laughs) There's no doubt that he's at work. He's at work all over the world. Uh, He is the prince of the power of the air. As Peter says, he walks about uh, roaring as a lion. And so he's active in the world today, but his strategy may be different. But back to your question. Demon possession is real, and I believe that God gives his servants the power, the authority to deal with cases of demonic possession when they become evident. We don't see the pattern in the scriptures, either in the ministry of Jesus or in the ministry of the apostles, of them acting as sort of what we might call demon hunters. It's not that, not at all. Uh, What we see is they go about the normal course of their ministry and uh, where there's demonic opposition, where there's demonic, um, you know, confrontation that comes against them, then they deal with it and then they cast such things away. So that's the way that I would understand uh, that kind of ministry in a modern context. Okay, next question comes from whosoever who asks, would you consider Acts chapter 2 an awakening or revival? It seems more of an awakening to me rather than a revival. Well, uh, whosoever, I, I would agree with you on that because um, here's part of the difficulty in answering this question. There is no, I think, universally agreed to terminology for these things. Um, thank you for the super chat. God bless you for that. Uh, but let me just get back to this. There's no universally agreed to terminology for this. And so the terminology I would use, and I'm not alone in this. I think I kind of picked this up from the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr, whose scholarship on the subject of revival and spiritual awakening I greatly respect. He described revival as the effect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church And he describes spiritual awakening as the effect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon uh, the society at large. And so the main effect of revival was to awaken, to to revive the church, something that already had spiritual life, and now it's being restored and renewed. Uh, Sort of in contrast to, well, not in contrast, in complement to, contrast wasn't a good word, in complement to uh, spiritual awakening which is uh, people coming to Christ, being brought to new life in Jesus Christ. Since on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you have people passing from death to life, people passing from a status of not being born again to being born again, I think that's better described as spiritual awakening. But I say all that with the recognition that there isn't necessarily universally agreed to terminology with this. So somebody else might call things differently. Uh, But thank you for that question there. I appreciate it. Um, Now I know asks, uh, what does Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse 18 mean by saying, for in much wisdom, for in much wisdom is much grief and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. Well, uh, Now I know, I would explain it in this way. First of all, I don't know, I've got a verse-by-verse commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes and the entire Bible, so I would recommend that resource to you, but without turning to my commentary on the entire Bible, I would just give this sort of quick answer. One of the frustrations of Solomon, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, is that under the premise from which he argues most of Ecclesiastes. And that is a premise that looks at the world apart from eternity. He uses the phrase repeatedly in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. 
and under the sun in the conception of the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is life lived without consideration of eternity, as if this life is all there is. And what he repeatedly wants to get to again and again is the pursuit of anything, including wisdom, without an eternal perspective, is simply vain. It's vanity. It's empty. It comes up meaningless. You see, only if we will come to the wisdom of an eternal perspective and understand uh, the eternal nature of God and the eternal nature of man within God's plan do we start coming to true wisdom. So uh, really, that's what he's getting at, is that apart from an understanding of God and eternity, even wisdom can be vain and empty. So he, he repeats that same general theme again and again throughout Ecclesiastes, the emptiness of everything in life, apart from a consideration of eternity and the God who governs eternity. All right, let me go to the next question here from Adrian, who asks, according to 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 30, Hosea's reign begins in the 20th year of Jotham's reign. But verse 33 says that Jotham reigned 16 years. Please help. Okay, Adrian, without reading those verses, I'm going to give you the, the quick answer. And again, I'm, you know, I'm tempted to turn open to my commentary and see if I deal with it in there and if I bring some resolution to it. But here, I, I don't know what I might say in my commentary on that, but I'll give you the quick answer off the top of my head. I do know that many of these discrepancies are solved by understanding that sometimes in describing the length of reign of the kings of Israel and Judah, sometimes they, dis- they talked about a time including a co-regency with their predecessor or their successor, and sometimes they spoke strictly in terms of their reign alone. So if there was a period of time, let me go to the question here, if there was a period of time Uh, of Jotham's reign when he reigned as co-regent with Hosea, then that could give a difference in the discrepancies, one being 20 years and one being 16 years. It could very well be explained as a four-year period as a co-regent. Now, I'm just going to be very honest with you. Without looking it up in my commentary and maybe doing a little more research, I can't say if that principle applies to that specific question but I know that that principle does solve or address some of the chronological difficulties in some of the reigns of the other kings. Hey, before I go forward, let me just say, uh, hello, everybody. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not at my home on the west coast of the United States anymore. Uh, Right now, I'm in Europe. I'm in Germany. I'm in the city of Siegen, which is a smaller city in Germany. I think it's just around 100,000 people. And it is in the province of Nordrhein-Westfalen, not far from the province of Hessen and uh, not far from the province of Rhineland-Pfalz, I believe it is. And so we're sort of at that corner of three provinces, but we are actually in Nordrhein-Westfalen. And I'm here for a conference, a conference of Calvary Chapel friends and uh, hosted by Calvary Chapel Siegen, Germany, where I served for seven years being the director of a Bible college here. We had a Calvary Chapel Bible College campus here. And my wife and I and our family, we moved over here and I served here for seven years together with my wife leading that Bible college. It was a wonderful work, wonderful for us. And God gave us so many wonderful friends and colleagues and people that we feel are true partners in the work of God's kingdom. And that's one of the things I love about a conference like this. Now, I think I did this same thing last year, live Q&A from the conference. But last year, our evening meeting ended sooner, and I had some people come in and say hi, some different pastors I know. This time, the evening meeting is still going on. Uh, I think they're having a time of worship. They're praying for one another. And so it's just me up here in the Calvary Chapel Ziegen bookstore uh, here in Ziegen, Germany, and I'm doing the Q&A live from there. God willing, next week, I'll be doing it from my home again on the West Coast of the United States. But in a few weeks, 
again, God willing, and if things work out right with internet connections, I'll be doing it from Brazil. Let's see if that's going to work or not. Okay, let me continue going on to the questions here that have come in on the live chat. I want to welcome everybody and thank you for joining us on today's program. It, it genuinely is a delight for me to be able to do this even when I'm away. Uh, this question comes from Tyler, who asks, what does it sound like to sing in tongues as in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15 mentions? Is that something that we should incorporate into our worship songs? Well, Tyler, I mean, it would sound like um, singing in another language. That's just simply what it would sound like because tongues are actually a language and it would sound like singing in some way or another in another language. Um, so obviously it would be melodic. The words would not be understood by most of the people. It may be that there would be somebody present of whom that specific language was being spoken, but that may not be the case in a particular situation. But it would be singing that would sound in another language. Now, your question there, Tyler, I think was interesting how you asked, is this something that should be incorporated into our worship songs? And the, the way that you phrase that, Tyler, I would say no, because the way that you phrase it sounds like it's something that can be engineered. And that's something that can be just done on command. And I think that in such a thing, because especially it would be something of a public utterance in tongues, that it should be very much led by the Holy Spirit and done according to the order given in the New Testament. I don't think that it's something to plan. It's something to engineer. Though potentially, if it happens sovereignly and spontaneously by a move of the Holy Spirit, well, th th then that might be another matter altogether. But I don't think it's something that uh, necessarily should be planned and sort of engineered within a worship service. Hope that's helpful for you there. Um, let me go on here to Andrea, who asks, have you ever heard of a near-death experience from someone who hasn't written a book or gone on a TV show? Is there any significance to these? What should we think of these accounts that people are earning money from? Well, uh, Andrea, I'm a little bit short on specifics here. Sometimes I don't have a great memory for such things. But I do remember some people telling me about near-death experiences that they had, and they weren't writing books or selling videos or making a name for themselves, but they had some interesting things in a near-death experience. You ask me, what do I think about people who make money off of such things? As it says there, I just want to make sure. What should we think of these accounts that people are earning money from? I think we should be very suspicious of such accounts. Some of these accounts have been demonstrated frauds. And so I think that's something to just be aware of and to be very cautious of, that some of these accounts have been demonstrated as frauds. So that's something to keep in mind. I think we should be inherently suspicious. But again, um, look, not every spiritual experience is given to a person so that they can share it with others. I mean, I think this is something that we've forgotten. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants their, their cliche 15 minutes of fame. And so they oftentimes try to make a name for themselves. Now, let, let, let's just say, uh, for argument's sake, that somebody had such a legitimate experience that they, that they really did have some kind of heavenly vision or something like that. Uh, I, I would say, don't share it. That's between you and the Lord. There's nothing necessary for you to share that. Oh, oh, sure, there are people who could be amazed by it. You probably make some money off of it. But those aren't compelling reasons to share something. I think we are very interested in the example of the Apostle Paul. If you remember Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he spoke of his heavenly vision he spoke of it so reluctantly that he wouldn't even directly say that it was his own thing that he experienced. And he spoke of what he experienced there as being um, inexpressible things that he couldn't utter. In other words, there was more to what he experienced that Paul didn't tell us about. 
And the only reason he shared it was to get to another thing, a reason why God allowed in his life a thorn in the flesh. But look, here's just the simple thing. Paul rarely shared it. He only reluctantly shared it. And he shared it in such a detached way that it wasn't even entirely clear that it was him who had this experience. I would advise people today who uh, are taken with some spiritual experience like that to have the same kind of reluctance. And I'll just say I'm suspicious of anybody who wants to make a name or wants to make money for themselves off of such a thing. So that would be my take. Ah, let's see here. The next question comes from, how do I study the history of the Bible and the Word of God? I'm confused on how the Catholic Roman Church relates to Christianity, translations of Hebrew and Greek, and all the different denominations. Well, Brianna, you're asking some very broad questions. God bless you for wanting to know those things, but there's a few resources I would recommend. First of all, um, Hey, I'll recommend a classic resource for you. Okay, ready? It's a classic. It's old. But I I find that a lot of older books are really good. Here's the resource I want you to get. Haley's Bible Handbook. Okay, remember that. Haley's Bible Handbook. I think that would be a great thing because not only does Haley's Bible Handbook give you great background on the Bible, on, you know, different aspects of how the Bible came into being and what the background of the books of the Bible are, help you understand the Bible, but it also has a section summarizing church history. So that's what I'm going to recommend to you for it. Now, Brianna, again, you're asking um, about subjects that people give their whole lives to devoting to, to one small aspect of that subject. But I would just simply say to you, that um, here's a tremendous opportunity for you. Begin with Haley's Bible Handbook. Haley's Bible Handbook is spelled H-A-L-L-E-Y-S, apostrophe S, Haley's in the possessive. Look for Haley's Bible Handbook. I'm sure that if you look on websites that feature used books, you can get one cheap because it's an older book and there's got to be a lot of them out there. And I I like because it'll give you a lot of Bible background but also has some basics on theology and church history that'll be helpful for you. And again, that's a great place to start. I'd recommend that you start there, Brianna. Okay, next question before I take a drink of water. I hope you excuse me. My voice is a little bit tired. I've been talking with people all day long, wonderful people. I had a great extended conversation with uh, Johannes and Christina are involved with the work of translating our Bible commentary into German. So pleased with the progress that's being made for that. So grateful for our brothers and sisters in ICF Munich uh, who are kind of spearheading and organizing this work. And even though Johannes and Christine are not part of that congregation, they're very much involved with the work. And we spend a lot of time today going over questions that naturally come up dealing with uh, translation and the translation work of the commentary. But that was just one of many times that I spent today talking with some dear people. So voice is a little tired. Okay, next question comes from Jay Parker, who asks, I've been incredibly blessed, and I know that I don't deserve anything. Excuse me. Uh, anything I've been given. I struggle with pessimism because I feel it's presumptuous to think that I will continue to be so blessed. What are your thoughts on this? Well, Jay Parker, I I want you to know, I see some good and some bad in the way that you describe your feeling here. Here's the good part. You're not presuming upon the blessing of God. Well, wouldn't it be strange for us just to kind of presume that, you know, hey, everything should be great in our life and comfortable and easy all the time and everything? I mean, that, that would be a strange way to think because Jesus did say to us, in the world, you will have tribulation. Now, I don't think we have to be defeated by that tribulation. I don't think we have to be depressed or down by it because Jesus also said, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. So we don't have to be uh, upset. We don't have to be filled with anxiety. We don't have to be depressed, but we shouldn't expect everything to go good all the time. That's just what Jesus and the rest of the Bible says. 
Paul spoke to the Thessalonians about the affliction that they were appointed to. And God has some affliction appointed to us in our life. Again, doesn't mean we have to be defeated. Doesn't mean we have to be down. We thank the Lord that there's victory in Jesus Christ. So I I like it that there's a humble attitude of not presuming, but there's a bad aspect to what you're saying here, Jay Parker. And the bad aspect is this. You shouldn't feel for a moment that God's blessing is something that you have to earn. Please remember, that's an old covenant way of thinking. That blessing is received by earning and deserving. That's old covenant. That's mosaic covenant. That's law thinking. Under grace, blessing is received by believing and receiving. And there's something wonderful about the believer who just believes that God wants to bless them. And again, we're not saying God wants to bless them and say, oh, making everything easy and wonderful and comfortable in their life all the time. That's not the blessing we're looking for. But to say, even in whatever adversity I may face, there's a blessing of God in it. And again, that believer believes that God wants to bless them. Not because they are so wonderful, but because the God they serve is so wonderful. That is a wonderful triumph. And I think uh, just sort of victory in faith. So that's the attitude I would recommend that you have there, um, uh, Jay Parker. Uh, It's presumptuous to think that God wants to bless me because I'm so wonderful. It's not presumptuous to think that God wants to bless me because of who I am in Jesus Christ and how great Jesus is and how loving and gracious God is. That's very solid new covenant ground to walk on. All right, let me continue on. Next question comes from Johnny who asks, what do you make of it when a church says the Zodiac was good and that it was the Maseroth? Okay, well, the Maseroth, as is quoted in Job, um, there's no specific reference that I can remember to the Maseroth in Psalms, but it does speak about God arranging the stars in Psalms. There's a thought within Christian theology that says that God originally gave an outline, a story of salvation in the in the stars, and that that story of salvation was later corrupted into the Zodiac. So, Johnny, I I would be very careful with a church like that because Christians shouldn't be glorifying or promoting the Zodiac. But if a Christian wants to say, well, the Zodiac is a corrupted version of something that God spelled out before, I think we can give a little bit of latitude to that kind of thinking. But again, it must be emphasized that the zodiac, astrology, astrological signs, astrological fortune telling, all that, that is a demonic corruption of something that perhaps God had at one time telling, communicating to humanity something of the story of salvation in the constellations in the stars. Um, I have heard this idea I would grant it a little bit of credence, but I don't have a lot of confidence in it. But again, I, I think that I, I would, would not call it heretical as long as they made it clear that what is today regarded as the zodiac, what is today regarded as astrological signs are corruptions from uh, perhaps something that God gave to humanity to speak about his plan of salvation for humanity. So that, that's the way I would explain that, Johnny, and I hope that's helpful for you. Next question comes from Lynn, who asks, how can we be sure that what we believe is correct? You can hear how Calvinists believe, then how another group believes. I'm so confused what is correct. Please help. Well, Lynn, look, I, I understand. Sometimes Christians like to argue a lot about theology. They like to dispute. Sometimes those arguments, those disputes are helpful. Sometimes they're beneficial. 
Not always. Paul talks about the danger of always arguing about words, about phrases, without really coming to any real kind of resolution on things. So I think there is a legitimate danger in that kind of arguing, but there's also places of uh, legitimate purpose of standing strong for the faith and doing that. I I think that what you need to do is just read your Bible, take it slow, and don't feel like you have to have an answer for everything right away. Hey, look, um, Lynn, I want you to know, I feel pretty secure in my theological understanding. I'm still learning. I'm still being corrected on things for sure. Uh, But I feel pretty confident. I'm not, oh, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to believe about this. I don't know what to believe about that. Um, No, I'm pretty confident in my theological understanding, but I've been doing this for some 50 years. Well, not quite 50 years if I've been a believer, but for more than 45 years, I've been a believer. And I uh, would just say, don't feel like you need to be in a hurry to have an answer for everything. And if you're really interested in a specific subject, spend a lot of time reading your Bible about that subject, and then maybe read some books that people have written about that subject, whether it's heavy theology or more just kind of light theology, whatever it would be. But most importantly, spend time in your Bible and make sure that whatever you believe, it's rooted and grounded in the Bible. Look, I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, I don't subscribe to Reformed theology, although let me say this. I don't regard myself as anti-Calvinist. I don't regard myself as anti-Reformed theology because I've received a lot of blessing. I've received a lot of edification over the years from Reformed writers and theologians, especially some of the older ones. So even though I'm, I'm not Reformed in my theology, I feel like I have something to learn from people and maybe there's something that they could teach me in that. And so I want to be open to that. But I know that my Reformed brothers, uh, at least the the better among them, and there's a lot of the better among them, look, they believe what they believe because they believe the Bible teaches it, and they have a way to explain it biblically. Now, I may think that they may prioritize some things differently than I would. They may put some thoughts or concepts, but they're not crazy for what they believe, not at all. And so I can respect that because it has a biblical grounding, even though I think it comes in some places to some wrong conclusions. I hope that's helpful for you, Lynn. Let me go on to the next question from Evie, who asks, if we have a new heart, why does it say that our heart is deceitful? Shouldn't we consider our hearts to be new as believers and not deceitful? Okay, Evie. The scripture passage that you're thinking of, unless there's a verse that I'm not thinking of, the scripture passage that you're thinking about, talking about the heart being deceitful above all things, that's in the book of Jeremiah. And that's before the new covenant is instituted. That's before God institutes the new covenant in which people are given a new heart. Please remember that that the new heart that God promises in salvation is a product of the new covenant. And Jeremiah wrote in an old covenant context. So even people who were saved, even people who loved the Lord in the days of Jeremiah did not have the new heart that is promised to people under the new covenant because the new covenant had not yet been instituted by Jesus Christ. Okay, now, that doesn't mean that the believer can trust his heart in the way that most people mean that phrase. Now, let me tell you something. The person who's born again by God's Spirit does have a new heart. It was promised in Ezekiel that as part of the new covenant, God would take out the heart of flesh and he would give them a new heart, a heart on which God's law is written And the new heart can be trusted, so to speak, because it's born again by God's spirit. But here's the thing, is that it may not be always easy to discern for a believer what feeling, what impression, what thought comes from their new heart 
and what might come from their flesh or some aspect of their old nature. You see, we may just sense it as an inward feeling. Now, I'd say, believer, do you really know if that inward feeling within you comes from a new heart or does that inward feeling come from the flesh or a worldly influence or some aspect of the old nature? So we're accustomed to speaking that uh, just any inward feeling is our heart and Not every inward feeling that a believer has is something that comes forth from their new heart. So I think that's the discrepancy. First of all, understanding the difference between old covenant and new covenant. But then secondly, is understanding that even under the new covenant, the fact that we have a new heart doesn't mean that every inward feeling is holy, good, and true according to the new heart. We can have inward feelings that come from the flesh, that are influenced by the world, or are in some ways connected to our old nature. I hope that's helpful for you. Let me go on to the next question from Andrea again, who asks, what does it mean that the Bible never mentions God giving Eve the breath of life when she was created from Adam's rib or side? Is it implied? Um, Andrea, I would just say, yes, it's implied. Um, think of it this way. God made Adam from non-living substance, the dust of the earth, the dust of the ground. God made Eve from living substance. Uh, Adam's side, you know, kind of colloquially we say rib, but it's really something from his side. And so that's a distinction that may be relevant here. What God created Eve out of already had life in it. It was living substance. What God created Adam out of, the dust of the ground, had no life in it. And that may be uh, part of the reason why there's no specific mention of Eve being given the breath of life. Uh, George asks the question, My pastor says that unless we speak in tongues, we don't have evidence that we have the Holy Spirit. What's your perspective on this? Well, George, I I would respectfully disagree with your pastor on that. I would describe the legitimate gift of tongues because sometimes the gift of tongues is just imitated or feigned. It's sort of faked. But I would say that the legitimate gift of tongues is an evidence of being filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit. But in no way would I say that it is the evidence. Look, George, let me tell you what the evidence of being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit is. It's the fruit of the Spirit in somebody's life. You remember that description from Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, or Philippians is it? A love, joy, peace, long-suffering, self-control, all those things that are characteristic of the, the fruit of the Spirit. That's the mark of someone truly being filled with the Spirit whatever spiritual gifts, whatever signs, those can be an evidence, but certainly not the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, I would say I would respectfully disagree. I know that this is a common teaching. It's a common thought in Pentecostal theology, but it's one that I would respectfully disagree with. I would call it an evidence, but not the evidence. Uh, The evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is... The fruit of the Spirit. Listen, if a person doesn't have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, self-control, gentleness, all those things that mark the fruit of the Spirit as described in Paul's letters, if a person doesn't have those, don't talk to me about what amazing spiritual gifts you have. You need to have the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life, and that's the real evidence that you are filled with the Spirit. Next question comes from Tunnel Banan, Shugo Tre. Hello from Sweden. Hey, I'm a little bit closer to you, Subway, Shugotre. Uh, when will saints who die between the rapture and Satan's release from the bottomless pit get their new glorified eternal bodies? Well, let me just say, the Bible doesn't say. So because the Bible doesn't tell us directly, I think it would be presumptuous to claim something directly. So... 
I don't want to claim something directly, but just simply to say this is that I would suppose, and it's just really a supposition, that it would be either upon death, because uh, these are saints who live during the millennium, and people will die during, they'll live extremely long lifespans, but they will die, so they would receive a resurrection body upon death, or they would receive resurrection bodies upon uh, what you might call the end of the age, uh, when Satan is defeated in that final battle and things are resolved in God's uh, plan and things move on to the great white throne judgment. So I would say at one of those two places, although we have to admit, that's not in something that the scriptures give us a specific answer to. Next question comes from, he is returning soon. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 17, begins with the Son of Man. Is this the Lord talking to the Lord about what he's going to do? Um, no. In the book of Ezekiel, Son of Man is a reference to Ezekiel, the prophet. It's just something that God called Ezekiel, um, kind of emphasizing his humanness. Now, when Jesus used the term Son of Man of himself in the Gospels, he was connecting it back with the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man is a messianic figure uh, attributed with God's judgment and glory. So when Jesus uses the figure Son of Man, he's not meaning it in the Ezekiel sense of just another human being, uh, you know, like a, a man who's a man. He's using it in the sense tying it back to Daniel, uh, where Daniel speaks about seeing the Son of Man. Uh, in this sort of uh, apocalyptic kind of thing. Okay, next question comes from Let It Slime, who asks, when someone asks, what is the gospel? What's the simplest answer we can give before going into depth? I know the gospel, but find myself a bit anxious when having to state it in a short sentence. Well, let it slime. Let me give you the best definition or description of the gospel that I can do. Just remember, first of all, what the word gospel means. The word gospel means good news. That's just what it means. So the gospel is a message. It's good news. So here's how I would define the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to rescue fallen humanity in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did in dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That's just simply how I would describe it. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to save fallen humanity to rescue, if you want to use that word instead of saved, to rescue fallen humanity and uh, in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, especially what Jesus did in dying on the cross and in rising from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news. A lot of that I get from Paul's description of the gospel in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that's what I would say. That's what the good news is. God has done something wonderful to rescue fallen humanity in the person and work of Jesus Christ centered upon what he did in dying on the cross and what he did in rising from the dead. Hope that's helpful for you there. Let it slime. Uh, you also ask there, what gospel tracts would you recommend? Well, I've got a friend who's coming out with a gospel tract called Jesus at the Center, and I think we'll probably find a way to make those available on our website. Um, but beyond that, I, look, I'm not familiar with gospel tracts uh, as they're available in today's day and age. So I don't really have anything to give you. If my friend's gospel tract was printed out, I'd recommend that to you. Uh, Rick Soto of the Ranch Church in uh, Solving area, California. But anyway... Um, We'll see when that comes out. Next question comes from, would you agree that revival starts with a believer representing, oh, excuse me, with a believer repenting 
And what are some sources to study revival? Thank you. I appreciate it. And everybody here, good questions, guys. Well, whosoever, it's kind of interesting, uh, here at this conference that I'm at, uh, right now, I don't know if you can tell, uh, I'm not at my home on the West Coast of the United States. I'm in Europe, specifically the city of Siegen, Germany, and I'm here at a conference. Uh, every year they have a May conference. I say every year it's been going on except for a couple years for COVID. Uh, for the past 13, 14 years, we've been having this conference here. And I'm very pleased that they invited me to come and be a part of it this year. It's a real privilege to be a part of this conference hosted by Calvary Chapel of Siegen here in Siegen, Germany. And a lot of the teaching here, a lot of the sessions have been centered on the theme of revival, Erweckung here in Germany. Uh, and so we talked about it. Pastor Roland Krum from City Chapel Stuttgart talked about it uh, last night. Uh, Pastor uh, Janos Hench from City Light Hamburg spoke about it here this morning. And Pastor Gerot from Jesus Tribe, Jesus Mission, um, wonderful evangelistic organization, was talking about it here this evening. But your question here uh, is repentance. Does, does revival start with repentance? I would say normally, yes. Now, look, it, it's not like we want to make, so to speak, rules for revival. Be, because one of the things about revival is that God may do things a bit differently. But normally, customarily, repentance is a huge work. Because, well, folks, judgment begins at the house of God. And God generally cleans things up, gets things in order in his house first before an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's just a common pattern. Um, our moderator here uh, said that they put links in the live chat to the work of the late Dr. Day Edwin Orr. Uh, we have some of his videos on playlists on our YouTube channel. I strongly recommend to you that you read those. He has a wonderful 10-part series on the history of revival and spiritual awakening. Again, it's a playlist on our very same YouTube channel. I recommend that you look at it. Uh, there's other revival resources by the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr available on our YouTube channel and other sources on the internet. I, I recommend those to you highly. But yes, I would say that normally speaking, uh, revival begins with repentance among believers, things getting right among the household of God. And uh, Candace Fear asks, we have any meetup in Germany or will you be doing any teaching? I'm in Cologne, still in Nordrhein-Westfalen, and I'd love to come and listen to your service live. Well, uh, Candice Fear, let me just say, I will be teaching at this service in Siegen. You know, Siegen's about an hour drive on the A45 coming uh, east out of Cologne. Uh, so I am teaching tomorrow morning. I can't remember the specific time at the conference. Uh, other than that, I will be preaching at Calvary Chapel Heidelberg uh, this weekend at the Sunday morning service. So you can look up online, Calvary Chapel Heidelberg, and uh, I'll be preaching there. So those will be the only two operators. This is a fairly brief trip to Germany for us. We just got here on Monday, and we're going to fly out this coming Tuesday. Uh, we've got a lot going on, my wife, Inga Lil, and I. And though we're very pleased to come here for Germany, it is a fairly short visit for us with a quick turnaround time. Thank you for that question, though, Candisphere. Uh, All right. That's the last questions I have from our moderator. Thank you, moderator, for your excellent work. Uh, so I'm going to leave it at that here right now because we are coming right up against our hour time. But I want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, my name is David Guzik, if we've never been introduced before. Uh, some of you may have some familiarity with my online Bible commentary, the Enduring Word Bible commentary. You can find it at EnduringWord.com, and it's an absolutely free Bible resource. Folks, we don't have any paywalls. We don't have any VIP zone. We don't have any special resources that are just for the special people. Look, everything on that website is there for you. The only thing you got to pay for is if you want it in print form, and that's available on the website. Uh, but we just love making these Bible resources free globally to people. It's great to go to Africa and see people use the Enduring Word Bible resources there. We were there a few weeks ago. It's great here to come to Europe and see people use the Enduring Word Bible resources here. Today, I met a brother who was grateful for the resources in English, in German, and in Farsi, in Persian. We have those available as well. 
Uh, it's a great blessing to be able to make uh, helpful Bible resources, hopefully helpful to a global audience. So glad that you could join us today. Next week, God willing, I'll be there from my home on the West Coast of the United States. You can join me again at 12 noon West Coast U.S. time. We're coming up right to 10 o'clock here. here. So that's going to be it for today's program. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless you, and I hope to see you next week. Thank you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.